Okay, we want to talk about how do we bring about change in our world. Because the sad reality is change hasn't happened. There have been missions in Haiti for hundreds of years. Look at Haiti today. There have been hundreds of thousands of missionary years in Africa. Look at Africa today. The church is everywhere. And so is corruption, HIV, all of those things. So change just has not occurred. And it's not because of them. It's primarily because of us. We don't know how to help people make changes. There are more seats up here. Um, and you don't need to be afraid to come. I had tuberculosis many years ago, but it's, it's, it's finished. I never did get HIV, so there's no danger. But this is a subject where the wisdom of the Lord is much, much needed, so let's pray. Lord, you invaded the world as a little baby. And you came in disguise. You came into enemy territory. But you came to occupy. And you brought change. Incredible change. Change that literally changed the cultures of the world in the first, second, third centuries. And now we're in the 21st century. And much more change needs to happen. So, guide our conversation this morning. And prepare many of those who are sitting here this morning to be agents of change with you so that good news can get into the hearts of people, into their behavior, into their lives, into the way they live, so that they can find that life that you want them to have now and forever. So we commit this morning to you. And thank you, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Uh, here are just a few statistics that demonstrate what I'm saying. There's two chairs up here. Uh, there's a chair there. Uh, <clears throat> and there's lots of space back there. Uh, Haiti. 70% Catholic, 16% Protestant, 95% Voodoo. Now, any second grader knows that's bad mathematics. But if you've been to Haiti, you know it's reality. Uh, Burkina Faso, 50% Muslim, 20% Christian, 100% animistic. And animism and the Christian faith don't mix. Animism and development don't mix. Uh, we'll talk a bit more about animism as we go along. So what have we been missing? And here... I don't think I'm even going to read it. You can read it because I kind of choke up when I do it. This is my country. My wife and I were there for 35 years. That means 70 missionary years. She was born there. Her parents put in 90 years together in Congo. Five million people who died in the last 15 years in Congo because of violence. What's happening to women is indescribable. But all of this in a country where 90% of the people claim to be Christian, including 100% of the thieves in the city of Kinshasa. 
So again, the question is, what have we been missing? Uh, more than one trillion dollars in aid has gone to Africa since maybe 1960. And that means government aid, missions, NGOs, the whole bit, done nothing. Well, that's not true. It's done a lot. It's fostered corruption, dependency, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, <clears throat> so basically the money has been wasted, all of the missionary years and so on. So our question is not, I mean, we're not here to have a, uh, a crying party, but we are here to ask and answer that basic question, what can we do? And that's what I want to share with you from our experience. We are Westerners. And we have been squeezed, we Christians have been squeezed into the world's mold. We have to look at that and realize that. And that mold is an Aristotelian, rationalistic mold. And that's the church. That's our church where the only sources of truth are science and reason. Now, God may exist. If he does, you know, it's fine. Uh, but he's not important in practical terms. God didn't have anything to do with sanitation or agriculture or those sort of things. That's rationalism. And that's where most of our churches are. That's where practically all of our theological schools are. We look for physical explanations of problems in the world. Biomedicine is thoroughly reductionist. And even though we who are Christian realize that we're whole persons, body, mind, soul, spirit, and they all fit together, when you get on a white coat and a stethoscope around your neck, all that's gone. We're back in the physical reductionist model of MRIs and lab and, and technology. Uh, also, when we go to Haiti, Africa, Asia, we want to help people with problems of sanitation. Haiti desperately needs it as cholera is spreading throughout North Haiti. And so we teach sanitation, clean drinking water, boiling. We're teaching behavior. That doesn't change anything because we don't realize where behavior comes from, and we don't realize that Haitian people don't understand science. They're not looking for physical causes. They're looking for spiritual causes. And that we need to know. Here's our culture. Just a schematic. And it's a wonderful culture. And we have accomplished many, many things. It is a culture of straight lines and 90-degree angles. If I were to assign you to count the 90-degree angles in this room, it would take you an hour or more. And you'd all come up with different answers because you'd miss one here or there. But how would you build a building like this without straight lines and square corners? And the other day in Fort Myers, I got on a Boeing Airbus. Not, not an Airbus, Boeing, whatever it was, 767. And I was thanking God Mr. Boeing knows straight lines and square corners. I wouldn't want to get on his airplane if he didn't. So this is our culture, uh, but it's not a complete culture. 
African culture, and of course that's where I've been, but this is true across Asia, across Latin America, certainly Haiti, many parts of the United States. African culture is a God-based culture. They believe in the creator God, but it's a fatalistic culture. And everything comes from God. Life, death, health, disease. That, of course, is Muslim culture. Same thing. But spiritual powers are paramount. So when things go wrong, you look for a spiritual explanation or a personalistic explanation. When a disaster happens, who caused it? When you get sick, who is making me sick? Who's cursed me? Who's put the evil eye on me? That happens in Benton Harbor, Michigan, by the way. We were up in that country for five years. Uh, <clears throat> everything in nature has a vital force. The mountains, the hills, the rivers, the uh, wind, the rain, the lightning, the clouds, all animals, uh, trees, plants, all have spiritual power. We have spiritual power, and the goal of an animistic person is to gain more and more power and to protect yourself from the power of other people who may want to do you in, who may be jealous of you. You can see what that does to building trust. I mean, it destroys trust. And that's one of the basic problems in these many, many countries of the world is an extremely low level of trust. And without trust, development can't happen. Without trust, a stable uh, civilization can't happen because people have to trust each other in order to work together. So here's traditional culture. And as you can see, it's different. There are no straight lines. There are no square corners, but there are beautiful curves. This fits much more into a natural environment than our culture. But our problem is how do we take ideas from here and get them there? And our ideas are based on science, and we say do this and don't do that, and this is why this happens, and that's why you can't do that. And we're very rule-oriented. We're very logical within our frames of reference. And when we go to teach sanitation or agriculture or nutrition, this is how we go about it. doesn't fit. And we get frustrated. And the fascinating thing, and you need to understand this too, this is how Africans do community health. I mean, African colleagues whom we have worked with, whom we have trained or who have been trained by others, they teach exactly like we do. And I don't know how many times in how many countries African colleagues come to me and say, Doctor, you know, it's useless. We teach, we explain sanitation and all of this. People just don't change. They can't change, they tell me. And I say, well, I know who can't change. <laughs> it's not the people. It's us. And we can change. If we know what's going on. Uh, <clears throat> and that's why we're here. We do the same thing in evangelism. 
And excuse me, I, I get sometimes a little bit too bombastic on this. We have four spiritual laws. We give them to people. These spiritual laws are focused on guilt. We have sinned. We are guilty. Jesus came, paid the price of our sin. We accept Jesus. Our guilt is removed. Our sins are forgiven. We have eternal life. That's true. That's biblical. But that's not the only way to get across the good news. The problem with the four spiritual laws in many, many countries of the world, particularly Islamic countries, even animistic countries, they don't feel guilty. So we need to know what they do feel, where they hurt, where their angst is in their spirits, and it's usually in the areas of fear, of shame, of uncleanness, and of death. But look what Jesus did. He raised the dead. He delivered people from the demonic. He uh, had control over nature. And he restored cleanliness, wholeness, dignity to people. So if we approach people of those uh, worldviews that way, then change occurs. Because now we're getting to them where they are. Uh, I don't know whether you can see this. If somebody can turn out the lights for just a half a second. That's one of the little buttons there. There you go. Thank you. Uh, years and years ago, my wife and I were in southern Congo in a Mennonite center. We took a walk late in the afternoon, and I saw this house. You can barely see it. This is a mud house, a uh, grass roof. And up here on top of the mud wall, the guy was adding cement block. And I kind of gasped. And I quickly got out my camera and took this picture, uh, underexposed. I desperately wished I could have gone back and taken another one, but that house is long since gone. <laughs> Why do you think it fell down? Well, it's obvious. But this is precisely what we're doing. We're trying to build solid structures on mud. And so in answer to the question I asked at the beginning, what do we do? We've got to build foundations and solid foundations. You know what that foundation is. The foundation is Jesus, but it's more than Jesus. It's the whole word of God. As Jesus said, Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like someone who puts the foundation on the rock. But it was not just Jesus. It's the whole of the biblical revelation. Now here's another picture. That's French, of course. Why does God allow suffering? Mud house, grass roof. And there's the basic question. Now, what's our usual approach to answer that? Well, we get on a projector and we show the Jesus film on this. Or another metaphor, we put wallpaper on mud walls. And then are aghast as we see those mud walls crumbling. So, 
we need to get back to building the foundation. You can turn the lights back on. And this is current missiology all over the world. And it's been the missiology of the last century or two. Uh, we go preach the gospel of salvation. We plant churches. We don't get here. And millions are converted. Billions are converted, but not changed. And our missiology should be this. Now notice, this is the gospel of salvation. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said very, very clearly, and it was during that long discussion in the temple about the end times, and Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world or in every nation or in every ethnic group, and then the end will come. And that's been the key verse of Edinburgh, 1910, and Lausanne, and I think even Lausanne, 2010. We've got to get the job done. We've got to get the gospel into every nation and every ethnic group, but we're talking about the gospel of salvation. Jesus didn't say that. What did he say? The gospel of the kingdom. Which means the gospel of everything, of all of life, of behavior uh, and lifestyle and so on. So, <clears throat> back to health education or education in other areas. We love to teach. But teaching is just conveying information. Now, information is necessary. But unless we convey whatever information we want to convey in ways that it can be understood, nothing will change. And if nothing changes, we haven't educated. I get newsletters from missionaries from all over the world as a because I'm on the Project Medicine board. Uh, and many times I see how many lessons have been given or They've been to this place and taught this and that and the other. But that's not getting to where we really need to get. If behavior doesn't change, we failed. So what I want to share with you is, well, how do we go about this? There are three stories that are essential in the educational process. They're also essential in the uh, process of evangelism. The first of all is the story of the people, and then our story, and then God's story. And God's story is essential for health education, as I'll try to explain to you in a few minutes. But notice these are interconnected. We need to understand these interconnections, and I think you'll see them as we go along. Uh... So where do we start the educational process? We start the educational process there, not here. We go out full of our story. And many people are going to Haiti now and telling people to boil drinking water. We're going out and we're telling them our story. But that's where we have to start. And it starts, well... What we need to open at the very beginning is not our mouths, but our 
We need to listen. And that's hard. That takes time. We have to learn the language. And real education, real heart evangelism is very difficult to do through interpreters. It's almost impossible to do through media, through the audiovisual. It's working with people, listening to them. And as you listen to them and they are sharing with you, you're building a relationship. And relationships are key to getting across the real good news. Now, we can listen to people before we ever get there by reading books, going to the Internet, finding out all we can about the people of Bangladesh or the Bengali people or uh, the uh, Mayan people in Guatemala. There's much you can read and learn before you even get there. And if you can come across traditional fables, they're marvelous windows into the culture, the worldview, the basic assumptions of people. But then when you get there, start building relationships, eating with people, laughing with them, sharing your life, listening to their life stories, and observing what's going on, and then asking the kind of questions that can help them explain more of themselves so that you can learn about them. We want to find out what works for them. And obviously a lot works for them. They're there. They've been there for thousands of years. So how have they coped with the situations in which they live? But then even more, what are their basic beliefs about, particularly about disease, why people get sick, where sicknesses come from, what can be done to prevent it. And in that process, learning uh, what they need to know. But what is key to all of this is to find links into their thought processes for the ideas that we want to get through to them. Because if we don't find links, our ideas are not going to fit. Okay, I'm going to take you on a brief but long journey to a church center in the Congo called Mayoko. I went there one weekend in 1967. It was my baptism into community health. I wanted to talk to the people about sanitation and what can be done to diminish the uh, frightful infestation of intestinal worms, roundworms, hookworm, uh, dysentery, that sort of thing. So I knew all about this. I had my story. I had some student nurses going along with me. Uh, we walked to this place, and we also carried a big flip chart that had very well done drawings that explain how worms are transmitted, how you build a decent outhouse, and so forth. So we were prepared. Uh, <clears throat> and that was my story that I wanted to get across to them. But I knew I had to listen to their story. So I asked them about the diseases they have. And, they, and there were about 60 people. Incidentally, we were in a church. 
But fortunately, the benches, the wooden benches, were movable. And so initially, as when the pastor took me in, I was up here in the pulpit, and they were all sitting in the benches. And I said, Pastor, let's make a change. And so we rearranged the benches in a circle, and I sat in the middle of the circle with them. That's how you do education. This is not a good educational format. You're passive. I'm doing all the talking. But when you really want to get things across, you've got to talk about them together. And I encourage you now, learn the inductive method. Learn how to ask the kind of questions that stimulate people to think, to talk amongst themselves. It works beautifully. InterVarsity was where I got my original training in that. Uh, Then I said, okay. Now, when a child gets sick, say in the village up there on the hill, uh, what are the parents going to think about why that child is sick? I didn't ask them, where do you think diseases come from? Well, they knew I was their doctor and they knew doctors' ideas. They just simply said, well, it's because we're dirty. That's not their basic belief system. So I asked them an indirect question. What do other people, what do the parents of a child up there think about the disease? That kind of question works. And they said to me, oh, doctor, it's the uncle that's cursed the child. I said, why in the world would an uncle curse his nephew? He's a member of his family. Oh, what's his... What's he do that? Oh, doctor, things go wrong. Maybe the father hasn't finished paying the bride price, or maybe he killed an antelope and didn't send a piece of meat to the uncle. The uncle's upset about something, so he makes the child sick. How does he do it? I mean, here's the uncle, and there's how does the uncle make the child? Oh, no, he he can say, pronounce a curse, or he can go into the forest and get some bark and some leaves and make a bark. And the child will get sick. I said, okay, but something must go between the uncle and the child to make the child sick. Oh, doctor, we don't know it's all invisible, but that's how it works. Their story was coming out. Then I said, uh, so I suppose they have to go to the uncle and find out why the uncle is upset and making the child. No, 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 they can't. They've got many uncles. Or grandparents. Or it may be a spirit of an ancestor. Well, then what do they do? Well, first they go to the diviner. Now, there are, diviner is a specialist of a shaman group who has the ability to figure out who is causing problems. Now, this guy, the parents will go to him and say their child is sick, and they want to know who's made the child sick, so they'll give him a chicken or or some palm wine or whatever, and he'll go to work. He may have a magic mirror, and he looks in his magic mirror, and he says, now, is there an old guy in your family who's missing hair here and white here and missing a couple of teeth? Yeah, that's the one. So now they know it's Uncle Henry that's made the child sick. So now they go to Uncle Henry. Say, so, Uncle Henry, why are you making our child sick? They don't go to him and say, have you made our child sick? Because the shaman has told him he has. And Uncle Henry isn't going to refuse and say, I didn't, because now it's his opportunity to get something. 
And he'll say, well, you know, there's this and that and the other thing. So now the parents have to work out with the uncle a, you know, reconciliation or give the uncle some money or some a goat or whatever it is the uncle requires. Now the uncle will take the curse off the child. I said, okay, fine. Now the child gets well. No, 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 doctor. Now they knew I didn't know anything. As long as the curse is on the child. Oh, no, now they can take the child to you in the hospital to treat. I said, no, wait a minute. That child has been sick for three, four, five days a week while they're doing all. Why don't they bring the child to me when the child first gets sick? I can start treating the child, and then they go through all of this. Oh, doctor, you don't know anything. (laughs) Which was true. As long as the curse is on the child, your medicines won't work. And I said, "Uh uh-oh. That's what they think about our medicines. They don't think pharmacologically. They think spiritually. Penicillin has power. Ampicillin has power. Uh, whatever the medication is, you name it, it has spiritual power. So the spiritual powers of all of our pharmacopoeia are uh, nullified by the curse of the uncle. The curse has to come off. Then our medicines will work. I learned a lot. And now you can see the problem. Here I was, there they were. I asked him a couple more questions about prevention. What can a father do to prevent the curse or evil spirits? Well, they may tie things around the the wrists or make amulets they tie around the waist or fetishes over the doorpost and so forth. So you see, they had their system of diagnosis, their system of treatment, their system of prophylaxis, of prevention, logical system. Just like ours is a logical system. But within their frames of reference, here I was with my logical approach to medicine. Within my frames of reference, they don't fit. How do you put them together? If you'll come to one of our workshops, I'll walk out the door at that point. And let you discuss this amongst yourselves for 20 or 30 minutes. This is a key question. Where do we find those links to into their story? Disease comes through the curse of an enemy. How could I talk about latrines? What do latrines have to do with the curse of an uncle? So... <clears throat> My story did not fit their story. They had no scientific understanding, and quite frankly, I saw no links whatsoever. And I sat there. And I said, help. Not to them, but to Abba. And you know, the link popped into my mind immediately. And literally, it's kind of a no-brainer. Once we learn to think outside the box. And I said, oh. And I thanked them for telling me what they told me. And I said, it helps me understand you people better. And I said, I'm impressed with the wisdom of your ancestors. Your ancestors believed that 
if they could figure out how diseases come, they could figure out ways to stop it. I said, my ancestors have done the same thing. And as you know, we've developed certain machines and ways of looking at the invisible to see how these diseases come and go. And with our microscopes and all of that, we've discovered that what your ancestors teach you, namely that one person can make another person sick, is absolutely true. Now, is it? Can you make somebody else sick? You better believe it. <laughs> we do it all the time. Uh, they were astonished. And they looked at me and their eyes got big and they said, do you believe that? And I said, yes, I do. And let me show you how it works. And now the flip chart came up. You see, they're talking about sorcery. We talk about contagion. But one person in sorcery makes another person sick. One person in contagious concept makes another person sick. We found, or God showed me, the link. And I had the flip chart. This was the first drawing. I don't know whether you can see it. Flick the lights out again for a minute. Here's Robert under a tree doing his thing. Now, the next picture will be, there's the little thing that he's done, this little brown mound, and the sun is shining. Another picture comes, the rain is falling. And then another picture has a magnifying glass over that little brown mound that shows in it the eggs of ascaris worms and little bitty larvae of hookworms crawling out into the grass. But the brown mound, of course, is disappearing. Then along comes Andrew under the same tree. And he walks through there with bare feet. He may sit down and play in the, under the tree, or there may be a mango that's fallen. And with his dirty fingers, he picks up the mango and eats it. Now the magnifying glass shows the dirt under his fingernails full of ascaris worms. And there's Andrew. And so I said to them, now who made Andrew sick? Well, in less than a second, they said, Robert did. They got the point. But you see, now I was using their terminology. Who made Andrew sick. And Robert did. Who is the enemy in your village? Or, if you will, who's the one who curses you? The guy who goes to the bathroom under the mango tree or in the grass. You can turn the lights back on. So then I said, well, what can be done about it? How can this be stopped? And immediately they said, doctor, we need latrines. I said, praise God. I thought we had finished, except just to explain how to build good latrines. Uh, they knew about latrines. The Belgians had legislated latrines. Everybody had to have one. If you didn't have one, you paid a fine. And so what was their understanding of latrines? To make the Belgians rich. No connection with health whatsoever. Now the connection was coming in. But then an old guy... Yeah, my story fit their story. Uh, then an old guy got up and said, Doctor, thank you very much. We understand this, but latrines are just for you Americans. They're not for us. I said, why not? Our ancestors never had latrines, which, of course, was true. Now, what was his problem? Fear of ancestral spirits. Because if they do something, 
that the ancestors didn't do, unless they're sure that the ancestors will approve of it, they won't do it. Because if the ancestors are upset, then diseases are going to come, epidemics, disaster, whatever. As the ancestors pour out their anger on them. So here was another obstacle I was unprepared to deal with. And so I said, help. But there the answer was even easier. I said, who made your ancestors? And they said, God did. Yeah, God made my ancestors. What did God say about latrines? All right, now there's some of you Baptists here. and There may be some theologians here. What did God say about latrines? And what did they teach you in Sunday school? You've been to Sunday school. And they said God didn't say anything about latrines. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, God did. I had my Bible. And if you were to talk yesterday, I explained to you why the Bible is so crucial in these kind of discussions. And it was a Bible in Kikongo. And I read to them what God said about latrines. And it's there in Deuteronomy. You shall have a place outside the community to which you shall go to relieve yourself. And when you're on a trip, take an instrument with you so that when you need to, you can dig a little hole. And then when you're finished, cover up your excrement. The word excrement is in the Bible. Uh, Anybody ever heard a sermon preached on that text? (laughs) I have. Just one sermon. I preached it. (laughs) It's there. Ask your pastor. Ask your pastor. But where where does the Bible talk about excrement? I say, well, forget it. No, no. uh -uh, It's there. And the next verse is fascinating. I am the Lord your God. I visit your communities to protect you from your enemies. I do not want to see anything indecent or unclean. Uh, If I do, I'll turn away from you. Or basically, if I do, I can't protect you. Deuteronomy 23.14. Dear friends, that's the origin of cleanliness in our culture. That's why the bathrooms and the motels are clean. And why the maid comes in every day and makes your bed. goes back to Deuteronomy 23 for ask her. (laughs) And if she gives you the right answer, you'll be astonished. But if she doesn't, tell her. Well, then we came to the most difficult issue. And they said, well, doctor, you know, okay, this is fine. Now we understand better. But we've always had worms. I said, yeah, that's why we're here. Why have you always had worms? It's God's will. And this is fatalism. And every culture in the world is a fatalistic culture, except cultures that are based on the biblical values, which is our Western culture for the most part, although we're drifting back to fatalism. Uh, And fatalism is an absolute obstacle to change, development, transformation. But this is what we're not getting at with our iceberg missiology. And that's why transformation is not occurring. I said, you mean God 
want you to be sick? And they said, yes. I said, well, let's find out. And we went to the first chapter of Genesis. We went through the whole story of creation. Everything God made was good. And uh, then God made the Garden of Eden. And, of course, that was good. He put Adam and Eve in the garden. And everything was good. And I asked him, now, in the garden, did Adam and Eve get sick? I said, no, no. Uh, did they have belly aches? No, no. Uh, was there any hookworm in the garden? Back to you theologians. <laughs> was there any hookworm in the garden? How about mosquitoes? Did Adam have to do that? Hmm? Oh, come on now. Were there mosquitoes in the garden? Has anybody ever asked you that question? <laughs> well, they got to talking. They got to arguing amongst them. Some said, no, there wasn't a hook on it. They said, well, God made everything. There must have been, and so forth and so on. If there were mosquitoes in the garden, they ate papayas. Uh, and then I said, well, the Bible doesn't go into those details. But... The Bible does make it clear there was no disease in the garden. It was not God's will. And then they, God doesn't want us to be sick. And then they said, well, then why do we get sick? Well, that's fatalism, just schematically. And I said, well, now we have to go into the third chapter. And we went into that. We sinned. We rejected God's order. And then disease came into the world. It's our fault. And as I sat there, looking around, I could literally see paradigms shifting in the eyes of these people. Huh, my goodness. It's our fault. We can't blame God for dysentery, for cholera, for AIDS. And many people do. We can't. It's our fault. We have messed things up. We have chosen disorder. But the good news is that now there's something we can do about it. Evil is not built into the universe. Evil came into the universe once it was here. Evil was not built into us. We chose it. But it's not part of our essential nature and it will disappear. And so there is hope. And that hope is that if we obey God, in all that we do, obey his laws that will favor our health. Okay, uh, time is running out, but we're almost to the end of this anyway. So, health has theological roots. And like I said in the talk yesterday, study your Bible. Study the biblical worldview. Understand who Jehovah Elohim is, El Shaddai, Jehovah Rapha. And understand all of the basic assumptions on which the biblical worldview is based, assumptions about nature, assumptions about human nature, about evil. Now, you're not going to understand everything because God hasn't answered all of our questions. There's still some mystery. But the point is God has made us responsible for nature 
and for our lives. And if we take the initiative, then things can get better. So God is good. Health is his will. Disease is our fault. Uh, And if we obey God's laws, health will improve, and it has. Okay, any quick questions as we wind this up? Yes, sir. John? Well, if you're ashamed of being sick, we're talking about shame. Uh, We're talking about disease in general, humankind. I mean, this explains where disease is a result of disorder. We're the guys that chose disorder. Now, I contracted hepatitis B in Congo. Was it because my uncle had cursed me? Was it because I had sinned? I got it in the operating room, I'm sure. Uh, you could say I sinned when I cut my finger or something. Well, you know, but that happens. Uh, so when it comes to personal episodes of illness, and somebody asks me, am I sick because I've sinned? I say, you're the only person who can answer that question. It may be, it may not be. In my case, I don't think it was. God did not heal me. Because of my sin. And it wasn't until God revealed my sin to me that then later on he was able to heal. My sin was working too hard. And when you got chronic active hepatitis, you need to take care of yourself. I didn't. I was too busy. I was indispensable. And finally God broke through after five or six years and, and made it clear he could not heal my liver until I obeyed the fourth commandment, which I hadn't been. And then eventually God did heal it. So uh, these are deep theological issues. Uh, That's just the resume of what I've said. Uh, But here you see, when we understand their understanding of life, And go to the Lord and say, Lord, now help us find ways to get into their thinking the gospel and into their thinking the gospel of health, then change can happen. And it is happening. And there are many good examples around the world, and particularly in the Congo, because this approach has spread. So dialogue, stories, songs, drama are effective means of education. Asking indirect questions about God. And about sickness, uh, about sexual immorality, and particularly about what the ancestors believed about these things. That can get into their story. So it requires time, study, and so on. And there are now courses that I think can help you. We do all of this community health teaching now in a DVD format, which has just become available. And that's how you can inquire about it. We also do a DVD course on caring for the whole person. One more question. Yeah. Can I mention the... Yeah, go ahead. Dr. Dan Fung is obviously a hero to many of us. We brought him in over the last year and a half and have taken not just... He's done it on an English-only format, 
We recorded 21 of these sessions in a bilingual format. We're putting it into different mother tongues, in Spanish, and a number of other languages already. But if you need any of his teaching in a language group that you're working in, we're by Steve Saints, uh, the Renew uh, booth by Steve Saints uh, thing on the second floor. Um, just visit us, and uh, we can we can see how we can get. We have his teaching on uh, delivering a baby, on sanitation, and many of the topics that he's, he's covered. And he did it for the nations. It's done for the people in the third world. So, thank you. Baron actually only made one mistake, and I warned him about it. And he didn't do anything about it. I said, Baron, 21 hours of people looking at me, uh uh-uh, that's not going to work. Cut off my head and put John Wayne's on there. (laughs) But he didn't do it. So, anyway. Yeah. uh, You know, we have marvelous good news. And this is what Che is all about. Uh, Getting teaching people health on a biblical basis. Uh, I wrote a book, Let's Restore Our Land, teaching Africans or Asians or Latin Americans how to improve the fertility of the soil, but based on the biblical revelation. We're responsible for the land. God said care for the land. Well, that's what that's about. So, okay, let's just thank the Lord. Lord, your word is quick and powerful. It not only penetrates to the hearts of us, it also penetrates to the heart of culture. Help us to realize that. And help us to find in your word the kind of cultural values we should be following and the nations of the world should be following. And then give us the wisdom to know how to transfer that understanding to people. Thank you for all of those who are here. And Lord, take each one by the hand and lead them to Bangladesh or to Mongolia or to Chile or to Memphis. Lead them to the place where you want to use them to bring about kingdom transformation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.